from the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. Today I am joined by a fellow author, somebody who likes to play in the Wonderland sandbox, and somebody I admire very much. Her name's Sarah Ella, and she has written a series called the Curious Realities Series. Book one is called The Wonderland Trials, and The Looking Glass Illusions is book two, Excellent titles for books, by the way. We're going to be talking about those books, the challenges of retelling classics, exciting other stuff that she's working on. And of course, we're going to talk about all things Alice and her experience in Wonderland. So I'm excited. Let's do it. Hey, Sarah. So nice to meet you. Welcome to the show. Good morning. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> so punctual. I really appreciate that. Nice Absolutely. To meet, nice to meet you as well. You're the first author that I've spoken with that has worked in Wonderland. So uh, it's and and reading your book and seeing all these parallels to obviously Alice's adventures in Wonderland, but also you know some of the things that I riffed off of was delightful. So I'm uh, I'm very excited to uh, to chat with you today. I'm so honored. I've been a fan of yours for years. My librarian years and years ago introduced me to the Looking Glass Wars. And I just remember being so excited because I was so drawn to anything Alice. So I'm just really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, This is really conversational. So it can lead in any direction. Obviously, we both have interest in Alice. And so I'm kind of curious, why do you think Alice has lasted for so long? That's sort of the premise of my podcast and a lot of the um, conversation because, you know, it, it sort of ties into the importance of story and how story influences us in our lives and, um, but uh, Alice in particular, and you've been a longtime fan. So I'm curious if, if you've been able to identify some of the specifics of what brings us to Alice decade after decade. 
I think in general, children's stories seem to last the test of time. And my librarian one time told me, she said, children's stories are the ones that last. They're the ones that we're drawn to time and time again, because they resonate with us as children, but they also resonate with us as adults. And I think for Alice, her story is one that we all relate to. We all want to escape We all want to avoid kind of growing up in that adulthood, but uh, her story is so interesting because she, she wants, she, she doesn't want adulthood. She wants nonsense. She wants to stay a little girl and be silly. And then when she's put in the world that she's imagined for herself, she doesn't want to be there. And so she can't really be satisfied. But I think with, especially with portal stories where someone is portaled into another world, that's something that that we all want. We all want to escape. That's why we read. That's why we love film. I'm a big film movie buff. And so just that that little bit of time of escape, I think, is something that we can all relate to. And just a reminder of imagination and what a huge role that that plays as well. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was very jealous of the wonder gene uh, idea, and uh, I thought it was very clever, and I also thought it was similar thematically to what I was playing with, with what you just said, with imagination. And I often had people ask me, where did this idea come from? And I would say, well, it, you know, it, it popped into my imagination. And then I thought, well, imagination can be a real power for people to think about what their life can be and, and, and to tell these stories. And then when I was reading your book about the wonder gene, which gives you kind of magical uh, abilities. And, uh, and so I think imagination, curiosity, wonder, these are all very much childhood expressions that we we lose or start to lose or fades for some of us as adults. And I often want to get back to that. And being a writer, you have to live in that space of curiosity and wonder and imagination. And so um, I, I think uh, what you did with the wonder gene is very specific, but yet it's in a grander um, grander thematic play. Can you talk about how you used, you use wonder, curiosity, and imagination in your work? Absolutely. Um, you know, it always makes me think of, I, I'm a huge Disney person. I love to go to the parks and just what Walt Disney did with making Disneyland and even Disney World so different from other theme parks and other theme parks have tried to replicate it is this idea of when you're in a certain land, you can't see the other land. And there are certain ways that Disneyland was built so you can't see the outside world. And so I I really love that idea of just being fully immersed. And so I thought, how can I do this with Alice? I didn't want to do uh i i wanted to do something different with how she gets into wonderland and and how can i make this my own how can i make this fit into this kind of dystopian world i've created and imagination plays a part in it and i think there's always that question of is alice dreaming Mm -hmm. or did she really experience this Mm -hmm. um 
we see that kind of in the Looking Glass Wars where, you know, Lewis Carroll has written this story and she is just so mad. She is so <laughs> mad that she's like, this is my history. And here you are pretending it's some silly children's story. And so I think there's always that question for the reader, is this real? And so that's really what I wanted to explore is what does it mean for something to be real? Does it mean that it has to physically be there? Is it something that we see with our mind? Is it something we imagine? Is it something we believe in? And so all of those things kind of culminated into the idea of the wonder gene and this idea of this kind of virtual visual reality that wonders have created for themselves. And I I love uh, stories like Ready Player One or Warcross by Marie Lu and just that idea of virtual reality. And uh, even in Harry Potter, we see Dumbledore, you know, telling Harry Potter, just because it's inside your head, why does that mean it should be any less real? And I so, so I think that's what's so fun about Alice is as much as we try to as authors, like, convince our readers this is real, there's always still that question, did Alice really experience this or was she imagining it the whole time? But why should that make it any less real? Yeah, and, and you did a great job um, in creating those two those two realities within sort of one reality that we all relate to. Um, so I thought it was clever also to have the Queen of England um, be the unimaginative, normal person, and then the Queen of Hearts be the real powerhouse in the, I guess it's underground or parallel. So, how do you think of it, and how did you, you know, some of the, talk a little bit about some of the world creation? Start with that, the two worlds, and the logic that you came up with, because um, the world creation that you've done is. You know, that's time consuming and it has to be right. Otherwise, you know, it's problematic for the reader. Thank you. It is time consuming. I'll admit I'm a discovery writer. And so my most frustrating part of the writing process is figuring out the logic behind my magic system and trying to make it all fit and work. I always see the characters very clearly in my mind and can kind of follow their storyline. But making sure that the magic system makes sense, I would say, is something I most struggle with. With creating Wonderland kind of on top of like England or London, I kind of played off the idea of what can wonders see that those without the wonder gene, the normals, can't see. And so I played off the idea. I was inspired a lot by just different stories. Brandon Mole's Fable Haven, for example, where he has the two children who go to this magical preserve and they can't see any of these magical creatures until they drink this special fairy milk. Um, And so kind of what is unseen to us until we have some kind of special ability or special understanding or special knowledge, we see it in Harry Potter where uh, the muggles don't see a lot of the things going on in the wizarding world. uh, And until Harry's eyes are opened up to us, up to it, he doesn't see it either. And so I really kind of, I guess it would be like the chosen one trope. Uh, I I know there are certain tropes that are repeated, but I think we're so drawn to the repeat of those tropes because we all want to be the chosen one. We all want to be Alice. We want to be the one who can see into the special world of Wonderland. And then I ended up tying the, what I call a pinch of science fiction in it because I am not a science fiction writer. I'm not smart enough to write 
science fiction, but in a sense, all science fiction is somewhat grounded in fantasy, uh, just Mm -hmm. at different levels. We see that with Star Wars. And so I thought, how can I make up my own science about this? Uh, Our family is big on Avengers and kind of uh, how all, how the superheroes come to be. Why are the superheroes able to do the things that they do? And so in my mind, Alice is a kind of superhero. Those with the wonder gene are able to see something that others uh, cannot see. Um, and so I just kind of played off that. And it just takes a lot of rewriting <laughs> and good e- good editors making sure it all comes together. Well, um, I just want to reiterate for the uh, listeners that um, I'm talking with uh, Sarah Ella, the writer of um, the Curious Realities book, which is this title, and then the subtitle, or is the Wonderland Trials, or how do you, because some people, a lot of people do that, and I'm always curious about that. So the how, how did the title all come together? Yeah, so the t- the Curious Realities is the name of the series. It's a two book series okay. with the second second one, which is the Looking Glass Illusion, which released um, just recently in twenty twenty three. Oh, great! Congratulations. Uh, so- Thank you. So that's the conclusion. I wanted to stick with um, with two books. It was my first time doing a duology, and that was a lot of fun. But with the Wonderland Trials, it was the first time that my publisher did not choose the title of the book that I thought just had to be the title of the book. Originally, the title was The Wonder Games. Uh, but my publisher felt that that sounded too much like Hunger Games. And of course... I had to, sometimes we have to release what we want for for the sake of um, what we know, what our publisher knows best. And so we went back and forth a little bit. And um, my editor actually is the one who came up with the Wonderland Trials. And so then that involved going through and changing uh, games to trials. And it I can't imagine another title now. It fits. But with The Looking Glass Illusion, which is the second book, that was always the title. And they kept with that title. So that's just kind of how I guess publishing works. I don't know if it worked that way for you, but um, sometimes I get to pick my title and my publisher likes it. And sometimes they they come up with other ideas. But the curious realities, um, why add that? So just from my my first book was The Looking Glass Wars, and then it was The Looking Glass Wars, Seeing Red, Looking Glass Wars, Arch Enemy. In retrospect, I probably would have had another title like Alice of Wonderland, Looking Glass Wars, Alice of Wonderland. Um, but uh, I wasn't as clever as you. So, but the the so the i mean the nice thing about the curious realities is it gives thematically it gives you a uh, a little a window into where you're coming from with the story so you have a little bit more mm-hmm. information going into the book uh and on a side note i really understand the wonder games versus um the wonderland trials because your book does have a hunger game um, aspects to it, which are also really interesting because they were really smart in terms of the games that are there. Um, so that must have been an interesting, because on the one hand, it's similar, which could be a good thing. I mean, uh, on the other hand, maybe you're kind of feeling like you're ripping off the Hunger Games and you wouldn't want that. Um, 
did that conversation probably took place quite a bit in terms of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing? Yes, yes. So going back to what you said about the Curious Realities, we wanted to come up with a series title that encompassed the entire series and kind of fit the idea of this alternate reality type universe. Um, kind of similar to like Marissa Meyer's The Lunar Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And then she has has each book, Cinder, Scarlet, and so on. Um, and so then with the, the Wonder Games versus the Wonderland Trials, um, I think there's always that balance as an author. We want to present something familiar that readers are going to grab onto. You know, if you say, well, my book is like Harry Potter or my book is like Lord of the Rings, you know, that's immediately going to resonate with readers. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you liked this, you will like this. And so there was that conversation of, well, it is kind of the Hunger Games meets Ready Player One or Alice in Wonderland, the Hunger Games. Some people have said it's Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire meets Ready Player One. And so you have that high concept, but also wanting it to make it your own. And so I think because it does have that kind of Hunger Games tournament type element to it, uh, my publisher did feel it was important. Well, it's okay that it's like that. We're all inspired by something that's come before us, just like we're inspired by Alice in Wonderland, but we need to make the title. It's something that sounds different. Uh, and so that's how that conversation uh, came about. I work in the movie business and there, when you're working on a movie, you're always looking for some sort of IP that's recognizable. And often some of the biggest, most successful movies are stories that are familiar to people, but told in unfamiliar ways. And uh, that is certainly what you've accomplished with with this with this book. Why do you think that is? You can see in reviews that people say, "Oh, I was never an Alice in Wonderland fan, um, and, but I tried this and it was really interesting." Or, "I love all things Alice. I'll read anything that I love retellings." And there's people that you know that that's something that they look for. Obviously, you've written, you did the reimagining of The Little Mermaid as well. Um, so what is it about familiar stories told in unfamiliar ways? I think it's just that, you know, like you said, the people who are drawn to all things Alice, for example, I think we're drawn to things that are familiar. We're drawn to things that are nostalgic to us. Uh, it's why I never tired of hearing Cinderella. Mm -hmm. I never, ever tired of hearing about the girl who overcame cruelty and stayed kind through it all. That's something that resonates very deeply with me. And it's something I'm really drawn to. Um, and so I think with retellings, I mean, we're all we're all inspired by something, whether we're retelling a really familiar tale or we're reimagining it or we're coming up with something totally new. We're still going to draw from different inspirations. And so I think there's that nostalgia aspect aspect and then it resonates with us like you said people who are drawn to anything and everything Alice in Wonderland but then we're also introducing readers who maybe would never bother to pick up the original Alice in Wonderland they might never pick up Alice's Adventures in Wonderland because it's it's interesting to read as you know it's it's kind of nonsensical and sometimes it it takes a few times to really try to dive in to what's going on around the nonsense in Alice's story. And so I love that aspect too, is that 
when we find a retold story that's told in a way that can invite a new reader in, they might now be introduced to other versions of Wonderland or to the original um, and drawn to that. And so I think on both sides, uh, you have those who are looking for something new and they they really want to like these classic stories or these fairy tales, but they've just never resonated with them. And then finding that version of the story that finally connects with them, I think is is a really fun challenge and uh, something I, I will keep doing as long as somebody keeps publishing my books. I, I think that's a, a great answer and, and, and very true, um, which is why works um, go into the public domain. And as you know, just recently, Mickey Mouse uh, went into the public domain in a very sort of kind of narrow definition, but um, because you're writing for a contemporary audience and so you're talking about contemporary themes um, and you're wanting to bring people in uh, and that's the whole point of the, is to reimagine stories and why they go into the public domain and, and you've done that with the Wonderland Trials, but yet in terms of one of the games, and I think it was Solitary, the first game, you have one of Lewis Carroll's quotes, who in the world am I? Who in the world am I? And that thematically is going to relate to, you know, my 15-year-old daughter and what she's going through right now. You have kids. What your kids are going through as they get older and they're trying to identify that. And so you want to you want to you want to cocoon that idea around a story that lets them explore and have adventure. And so the public domain and stories that are familiar that are told in unfamiliar ways, really what you're trying to do is what, what exactly what you said is connect with a contemporary audience. And if they discover Alice's adventures in Wonderland because of it, you're going to make a lot of librarians happy. <laughs> I I 100% agree with that. I also have a 15-year-old daughter. And as you know, teenagers, they don't know who they're trying to figure out who they are. And I, that's why I think I love writing about teens and for teens. But at the same time, I have so much of my audience are adults. And so uh, I just think that that kind of teenage period of time of figuring out who you are and what you want and what you want to do uh, just continues to resonate with us year after year, no matter how old we get. So I always ask my guests if they were to choose a character from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland to describe their personality and their aspirations or part of them, um, who would you dress up with? dress up for as for Halloween or as cosplay. I have a feeling I know who you would choose, but please tell us. I feel like my answer is very cliche and boring. Uh, but as I uh, was friends with Alice when I worked for Disney, uh, the Disney parks, um, I had the privilege to be friends with Alice as the term goes. Um, and so I, I would choose Alice. I, I love how she's walking around in this world that she created for herself, that she wanted, and yet she's going around trying to tell people they're not taking her seriously enough. Everybody needs to be more serious. 
stop with the nonsense. And that just really resonates with me. <laughs> uh, it's kind of the dynamic of my my husband and mine's relationship, which is very similar to Alice and Chess in the Wonderland Trials. Is He's always trying to lighten the mood. She's always trying to get him to be more serious. And um, it's a fun kind of dynamic. So it, it might be a boring, typical answer, but I would definitely be Alice. Interestingly enough, it's not. Most of the time, people pick some other character. Um, and so I, I always find it interesting when you uh, when someone picks Alice. And but you know what what I, I find also curious is that in your book Alice is really edgy. I mean she's street smart. She's like a card shark. Uh, she's got great retorts. I love your character and and um, of Alice and her nickname is Ace. And uh, which is really appropriate. And by the way, all of the references to cards and the design of the book, everything about the book from the production is spectacular. It's Thank you. <laughs> it's I... so well done. Uh, kudos to your team, whoever they are. Thank you. I have a really great team. I was really grateful to work with a cover designer who took my sad little concept that I created because I am not an artist in that regard and uh, turned it into the cover because the cover really, really is probably my favorite cover that I've ever had. Yeah, it's 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 really and in the second book, I, I just saw it, uh, just pulled it up on my phone and that cover is great, too. And um, you. so you do have a so you have a good team. Um, you said that your your process is discovering the book or the story as you write. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? How do you ever find yourself writing yourself into a corner and going, oh, man, I have to start all over again? Yes. But after six books now, I'm working on my seventh. I have learned to stop fighting that process. When I first started, I thought, I I know I'm doing this wrong. I must, <laughs> I need to outline. I should outline. And outline, the one book I outlined was Coral, which is my reimagining of The Little Mermaid. And I had to rewrite that book three times. And so I almost feel like in a way for me and my process, and this is why I tell all writers, just because something works for somebody else doesn't mean that's going to work for you because we're all creative in different ways and our brains work in different way ways. And so if you feel like you're inside a box with outlining, try not outlining. And so that's what I, I, I have the idea. I really love Save the Cat Writes a Novel by Jessica Brody, which is based on Blake Snyder's Save the Cat for, for screenplays. And as somebody who's a very visual movie person, Save the Cat, the beats that she puts together for that work for me. It makes sense to me. And so I follow those beats as kind of a guideline of, okay, I'm at this percentage of the book. Where do I need to go next? I use it as my map, my GPS of sorts. And Jessica Brody has a really great course on um, her writing mastery academy about fast drafting and how her process works for that. And I realized this is what I've been doing, but she explains it and organizes it in a way that even though there's kind of a madness to it of discovering your story, uh, there's still a method to it. And so it's a lot of note-taking 
uh, just keeping track of and moving the story forward, getting that first draft down and keeping notes along the way. I have comments in the margins constantly. Change this character to a female. Make sure that you change this character's personality. And so it's almost like I'm editing it as I'm writing it and I'm seeing the problems come out. But then I just write forward from that point of However, I'm going to end up changing the beginning. I'm not sure if that makes sense to anyone. Jessica Brody explains it much better in her fast drafting course. And of course, highly recommend Save the Cat writes a novel for for any writer who is particularly visual and understands story more so through the lens of film. Uh, I love books. I'm a huge reader, but I would say that uh, stories on screen are my first love. You know, you and I have, uh, we're very similar in that way, and your writing kind of demonstrates that. It's its very visual, and I i imagine in some of the reviews people have written, would write about how visual the world is, and certainly that happened for me because that's the medium I was working in when I started writing this book as well. So, um, and, and also I had to rewrite The Looking Glass Wars really being my first novel that I seriously was going to finish, you know, three or four times as well. And, uh, and then once my editor came on, it was like, oh my God, do I have a lot of problems to fix? So, uh, but once you get the first book under your belt, uh, to your point, you find your own, you find your own rhythm. And I think what you just described makes perfect sense. And everybody does things differently. And also, your talent for prose, I mean, they're, they're, that's really beautiful writing. And so, um, you know, that alone can carry the day, such beautiful prose. So you're, thank you're, you. You're no wonder you have so many books under your belt. So um, well, I'm honored. Thank you so much. So let's talk about um, promoting your book. And uh, you have a great bookstore. You live in Arizona, right? Yes. Yeah. Whereabouts? I live in uh, north of Phoenix, so I'm about 20 minutes north of Phoenix. You ever go to the Comic-Con? Yeah, I'm hoping to be able to go this year. Um, It's called, in Arizona, it's called Phoenix Fan Fusion now, but uh, I'm hoping to be able to go. I have connected with a local bookstore that's kind of connected uh, with, uh, with the Phoenix fan fusion. And I have several author friends who go. So that's, that's the goal. That's the dream. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my uh, experience. I went to Comic-Con in San Diego. I had only published in the UK. And when I was in the UK, I went to a, uh, a school and one of the kids was upset because I didn't write the whole story of Hatter Madigan's 13 years. And he wanted me to go home and finish the book, which made me laugh because he was 10 years old. And on the plane ride home, I thought, you know, maybe I could do a comic book about those 13 years. And so I did a comic and then I went to San Diego Comic-Con. And it turns out that, um, you know, people were interested in the comic because of the artist. But when they read the comic and they realized there was a novel attached with it, attached to it, they started buying on Amazon UK, the British edition. And what I realized is I sold more novels at Comic-Con than I did 
um, comic books. And that's because they're huge readers and they're early adapters. They want to get the word out. And so publishers started going, you know, proper, you know, my publisher, Penguin, started going to Comic-Con and authors. And it's a great place to, you know, press the flesh and sell books and whether you get a dealer's table, which is, you know, for folks like us, or you go in with a, a publisher and you're at their table and you do some signings, um, it's, it's, it's a really uh, great way to expand your, you know, your adult audience, even though there's a lot of kids that go with their parents to Comic-Con now. But, um, yeah, I would really encourage you to do that because uh, the Phoenix Con is has always been excellent. It's, um, I mean, it's in May, it's hot, there's nothing else to do, why not go read, find authors you love, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's a really great way to connect with folks, so you should do it. I, I definitely want to, and now you've motivated me to try even harder to be able to get there. Uh, have you done any um, uh, anything with Changing Hands, that bookstore? Yes, uh, they have been so fantastic to work with. They help have uh, collaborated with me to do pre-orders. And so uh, readers who pre-order my books are able to get signed and personalized copies along with a little envelope of pre-order goodies. And they they have just been fantastic. They've done my launch parties for the past three books. And I will continue to go back there because they have a huge YA audience. Yeah, they've cultivated the best audience. I, I've done a number of um, events with uh, with Changing Hands, and and uh, they're also great at setting up school events. Have you done many school visits? I've only done a couple school visits, uh, but I'd like to eventually do more. And so I've been really grateful to be connected with several authors in the area and kind of keep my ear to the ground for different invites and opportunities that come up. Well, I will also uh, encourage you to do that because the thing about Arizona and the schools is they're very large and you can get a big audience. And I don't know if you like public speaking, but... I happen to uh, enjoy the more the the merrier, and you can go into some of those schools, and Changing Hands set this up for me, where there'd be 300 sixth graders, 300 seventh graders, 300 eighth graders in one school, and you show up, you do three presentations, and then Changing Hands or any other bookstore that is associated will sell the books on site and, um, and or get pre-orders or post-orders. Um, and that was one of the great ways to build out that YA audience. Um, and you have such a unique and interesting story because of your time at Disney and your interest in fairy tales um, that I think you could really, really connect with, uh, with those kids. It's a bit terrifying at first, but <laughs> because, but you have three kids, so you know what it's like. You just go in there and make sure you get them on your side, and and then you can talk about your book and writing and all that stuff. Yeah, I love. Uh, I always 
say it's easier to speak in front of adults than it is uh, to children because you really have to win children over. But I do love public speaking. I taught a creative writing class last year to teenagers uh, at our homeschool group. And the year started with them saying nothing and acting like they didn't want to be there. But as the year progressed, I couldn't get them to stop talking by the end of the school year. And I feel like you, you, you have to earn earn that from kids. Whereas adults, you know, they want to go hear a class from you or whatever it is, but, but kids, you have to earn it. And so I think that's what I really love about particularly speaking in front of teens and children is if you have them engaged and laughing and asking questions, you know, you've earned it. And that's, what's so much fun about it. So I, I definitely would love more opportunities to speak at schools. I had the opportunity to speak at uh, Arizona state university uh, to their writing summer camp a couple years in a row. And that was a smaller group, but also a lot of fun. Um, so tell me a, a little bit about reviews or well, let's not start with reviews. Let's start with um, advanced reader copies where you're, you know, getting folks to read your book and give you notes before you finalize it. Um, did you do much of that um, advanced reader copies with, you know, a set of readers? Yeah. So with my first book, with my debut novel, which is called Unblemished, um, I did work with several beta readers who were giving me feedback uh, before I even submitted it to publishers. Now that uh, I'm writing on contract and writing on deadline, uh, usually what I what I form is kind of a street team. And so they're the ones who get the advanced copies and my publisher sends e-copies out to them. Sometimes they get physical copies, depending on how many advanced physical copies are available, and they get to submit reviews uh, early so that we can kind of build that hype. I always ask them, please, before the release, only have spoiler-free reviews. Please do not post spoilery reviews. Um, as far as feedback goes, uh, at this point in my career, it's the feedback mostly comes from my my best friend, who's a fellow author, Nadine Brandis, and we kind of bounce off each other. And then just just working with my editors. Uh, sometimes I'll ask my 15 year old daughter things because I find myself dating myself <laughs> with certain references. <laughs> I'm I'm also an editor, and so when I'm editing a, a story for a client, and there's a reference, there was a reference the other day in a book I was editing to Smokey the Bear, and I asked my teen daughter, I said, "Do you know who Smokey?" the bear is and she said uh she did and so that's kind of how i gauge if if i'm dating myself with some of that but as far as feedback goes um most of those advanced copies are really just going to those early readers who are getting the word out um but at that point nothing in the novel can be changed right right and um and what about how do you feel I mean, I'm not sure what kind of reviews you've had in terms of, I, I don't mean quality of the book. I mean, as it relates to Alice in Wonderland and, and the British sensibility versus an American taking it on. Like I got a lot of blowback on what's this Yank doing, taking on our classic. And I went on the BBC in the UK and it was a whole, it was a whole thing. And I noticed a lot of the reviews were, not always that kind. And I, and I, and I thought it was, I, I, it felt sort of personal because I was, you know, an American. I was curious if you had any feedback about taking on this classic. 
Absolutely. I think you're always going to have both sides of the coin with a retelling. And whenever I'm asked by a new writer um, about how, what are your tips for writing a retelling? I always say, you can't please everyone. You're going to have your readers who expect it to be exactly like the original. um, And they're very protective of that story. And so if you get something wrong, or if you change something in a way that they don't like it, they're going to come after you. Uh, And so particularly with, and, and you know, when, when you're researching another culture or another place that, that you're not from, you want to get it right, but there are inevitably things that you're going to get wrong. And so on the one hand, I've had people say, wow, I lived in England for three years and this is so authentic and accurate and uh I loved it. And then I've had other people who have reviewed it and said that everything was very forced. And you can tell that I knew know nothing about England or British culture <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, so. I, I think I have that exact same review. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to kind of just expect that your story is not going to be for everyone, you're going to research to the best of your ability, but we're also writing fiction. We're writing fiction, sometimes based, sometimes based in things that are part of our reality, but in the end, you're going to take certain liberties and your book's not going to be for every reader. I, I don't read reviews uh, unless they're sent to me. Uh, sometimes I stumble across one or two. I wish I hadn't stumbled across, uh, but for the most part, um, I just, I find that either way, if I'm reading constant reviews that are building the book up, I'm going to get a big head about it. And if I'm reading constant reviews that are tearing the book down, I'm going to doubt the book and there's nothing I can do about it because I can't change it. So I just kind of try to stay, stay down the middle of the road. And if somebody tags me in a review, I, you know, I, I'll read it and I'll thank them for it. Um but for the most part, I always tell writers, if if reviews are affecting you one way or another to the point where it's it's affecting your writing and it's changing the way you think about your own story, then it's probably best to try and stay away from reviews altogether. You know, I felt that way for the Looking Glass Wars, but, uh, but then I became immune to it. And then sometimes what they write about is ac- actually makes you think about Oh, you know, I guess, I guess there's a different way of seeing that scene or interpreting that character. But again, like you know, at this point, you have to just sometimes laugh at at some of the the reviews that come across, and some do make you want to be a better writer and and think about uh, how you're telling a story or portraying characters in the future. But some you just have to laugh at because again, we're writing fiction, and some. Just those. I had a one star review for my book, Coral, that all the review said was, Why do people keep writing mermaid books? That was the (laughs) entire review. And I thought it's bringing my ratings down, but it's kind of like it's comical. Um, and we you have to keep a good sense of humor throughout all of this because there are going to be people that that don't like your work and they criticize it, and and especially for all the blood, sweat, and tears you put into it and the hours you probably spent researching Lewis Carroll, uh, you know, it's kind of like, hey, I want to go back to that that reviewer and say, hey, I spent this much time <laughs> researching, but you just kind of have to let them have their opinion and, and move on to the next thing. Well, at this, at this point, after 150 plus years and all of the retellings and how 
deeply seated Alice's in culture in every single medium, uh, whether it's, you know, politics or music or art or gardening. I mean, I've seen some spectacular Alice in Wonderland gardens. So are you critiquing the way that that garden is because it's Alice in Wonderland? It's uh, so I don't take it. I, I'm not even sure people take it that seriously anymore um, at this at this stage with how much Alice is out there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the sequel? Because I did not read the sequel, and I'm curious. Um, did you, you know, for an, I'm gonna as a demo, I'm gonna tell you that on the my two books, this I mean last two books, Seeing Red and Arch Enemy, was really a continuation. Uh, and it really upset people. It, they were pissed off because it didn't have that definitive ending like the Looking Glass Wars. And it was a long time before um, Arch Enemy came out. Um, if I had to do it over again, I would have had a more satisfying ending uh, to to the second book. Um, but of course, I was inexperienced, so I didn't really realize that. In your so, tell me about the ending of just explain the ending of um, the Wonderland Trials, and then it's the Looking Glass War. No, the Looking Glass. What's the title? Illusion. Illusion. That's a good title. Yes. Thank um, you. Tell me about uh, tell me about how you constructed the is is it a what's the transition. Yeah, it's a continuation. And so uh, for those readers who have not read The Wonderland Trials, now would be the time to fast forward through this part of the podcast. But uh, the the Wonderland Trials ends with Alice and her team, Team Heart. Uh, they are leaving the third trial behind and entering the fourth trial, which is the Queen's trial. It is the heart trial. And uh, they don't quite know what to expect. And then the entire premise of the looking glass illusion is is where you have the Wonderland trials that has the three different trials, games, tournaments, challenges, if you will. Uh, the entire second book is set in the heart trial. And so it, for those familiar with um, Lewis Carroll's uh, second story of Alice through the looking glass, uh, it's all on a chessboard and it's all about Alice trying to get to the eighth square and I went into this not knowing how to play chess. And I thought, I've never played chess. I don't understand it. I don't like math. So how am I supposed to write a book uh, that's based on the game of chess? And that's where my friend Janelle came in. And she she sat down with me and taught me the basics of how to play. And so the entire uh, story of the Looking Glass Illusion is trying to defeat the heart trial, but also trying to find what's real and what has happened to the real Wonderland? Because as Alice and her team kind of learn through the Wonderland trials is that what they're seeing is is not necessarily what the real Wonderland is meant to be. And uh, is kind of this, uh, this illusion that, that they believe the Queen of Hearts has created for them to see. And so um, if they defeat the heart trial, they believe that they can find the real Wonderland. So that's really the, the second book. Oh. And I had a lot of fun figuring out how chess played into it, how um, 
some of the nonsense words I had a lot of fun with, with, okay, this is a nonsense word, Lewis Carroll, but how does it fit into my world? And so I had a lot of fun with that and, and the Jabberwock and really the whole theme is believing in the impossible, but also facing your fears. Yeah, I really, I, I like that, um, uh, believing in the impossible. Let me ask you another question about Alice and pop culture. Do you have a favorite um, that's not, I'm assuming the movie, uh, the Disney movie is one of your favorites, just because you work there. Um, but do is there some song? Is there is there some other movie that's, that is a is something that you could share with us that you love? Absolutely. So the, the theme song that I listened to a lot when I was writing the Wonderland Trials is Anson Zebra's Welcome to Wonderland, uh, which is kind of a melancholy song. But obviously, if you're writing Alice, you're thinking of Alice, but it's it's really just a song for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really love the lyrics to that song. But one of my favorite uh, kind of reimaginings of Alice on screen has got to be what Once Upon a Time, the TV show did with uh, Mad Hatter's character. Just I'm not even talking about Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, but with with the episode in Once Upon a Time where Jefferson Hatter um, and you see his spiral of uh, having that he's a portal jumper and obviously um, the evil queen Regina, you know, she wants to use him for this and kind of how he spirals into madness. Cause there's always like, how did the mad hatter become mad? Like, why is he the mad hatter? And um, there's obviously the history behind how hats were made and, mm-hmm. and all of that, but just uh, how he spirals and he's so desperate to get back to his daughter that he uh, just continues trying to make a portal jumping hat. And uh, so I, I love what once upon a time did with that. I love what they did overall with, with meshing and melding the different fairy tales uh, that, that was a lot of fun. It remains one of my favorite kind of on screen retellings of just particularly Hatter's story. Can you tease us with a retelling that you're thinking about or that you would like to do but are not willing to take on the challenge or, you know... Like mine, yes. I'll tell you, is Treasure Island, <laughs> just so you know. I just like, okay, there's got to be a way to do Treasure Island. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I, I that's exciting. I would read that book. Uh, Treasure Planet is is one of my all-time favorite underrated Disney movies. That mm, So I, sure. I, will be in, I will be in line for that <laughs> story. Um, so I am contracted for a four-book series with my publisher. Um, and each book is going to be a retelling book. Uh, paired with a literary classic. Oh. Um, I cannot divulge specifically the one I'm working on now, which releases in 2025, or my marketing director uh, might have... Um, Off with your head. She might, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Off with my head. Um, but I will say that for anybody who's followed me, um, I'm. you can find me on Instagram at Sarah Ella writes. I, I've been dropping lots of clues to the fairy tale um, that I've wanted to work on for many, many years to come. It's a fairy tale that has resonated with me. And the book that I've chosen to kind of mash it up with uh, is one of my favorite stories from literature, but it's also one of my favorite films. And the film is very different from, from the book, but 
um, I feel that this particular fairy tale and this particular story from classic literature fit very, very, very well together. So uh, if you want to go clue hunting, if you've read Wonderland Trials, you know I love clues and games. Uh, you can kind of scour my Instagram to see the clues that I've dropped for what I'm working on next. Okay, listeners, I need you to do that and uh, and message me what you think it is. And uh, and I definitely want to follow up and have you on the show again and uh, hear all about it because that is an excellent, um, an excellent tease for your uh, upcoming book. So it's really been a pleasure to have you on the show and talk about all things Alice and in particular your um, your really successful, beautifully written books. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. I, I, when I received your email um, to be on the show, I just thought, is this real? I actually showed it to my publicist and I thought, is this real or am I being like scammed? Uh, <laughs> so thank you for having me on. Um, I, I've been a follower of yours for years, love your books. Uh, and it was really an honor to get to chat with you today. Well, thank you very much. So uh, have a great day. Thanks for being on the show and uh, we'll we'll be in touch. Thank you. Sounds good. You both have a great day. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Bye.